Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. Hello. I have my trusty timer in the back because no one trusts me with time. Um, So, normally I have an abundance of visuals to kind of help you along with things I'm talking about, but I'm going to break from the norm here. I have no slides for you. Oh my. I'm going, I know. I've introduced you from all, you know, clear through Caravaggio to Amsel Kiefer, and maybe you don't even know. I've introduced you to some very strange Russian Orthodox iconography, but all I'm doing this week is wearing a pair of earrings. So hopefully it won't be too horrible, but here we go. And in a bit of a break also from what has been the dominant theme, which is, you know, carrying the load with Troy and Sue's, um, Matthew 12, um, instead, the first couple incidents are about conflict um, and Jesus kind of getting a little bit testy with his in- interlocutors, the Pharisees, whom in my outline I lovingly call the peas. So um, I'm going to talk about the emotions of God um, because in these conflicts, Jesus tends to show a couple glimpses of some divine temper. And uh, it's also something that I've been thinking a lot about um, in that in the West we have, well, we have a lot of ideas about emotions that are not necessarily biblically grounded. And um, when we have an opportunity to kind of see Jesus get a little bit argumentative, um, confrontational, it sort of sets off some alarms in us because we're so used to seeing Jesus as this tender and compassionate and giving sort of figure that when he pushes back a little bit, we're a little alarmed. Um, And certainly the last time I spoke was about the woman who had the issue of blood and how um, Jesus, in a moment of breaking away from cultural norms, saw an invisible person and almost reflexively, because of his great compassion, healed her, almost without his permissions, um, because his compassion is so powerful. So that's certainly an emotion of God, but we're seeing another dimension here in Matthew 12. So I'm going to just quickly gloss over what is the content of the first three kind of conflicts in Matthew 12. Um, And I want to say as well that the content of this next 20 minutes is sort of accidental. I thought this would just be an introduction. I could really get at the meat of what I wanted to talk about, which is these last kind of two portions of Scripture where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you'll be judged by your own words. And then he says something even more insulting. He said, you'll be judged by the Pharisees. Moreover, the Ninevites who are Assyrians, who are some of the most terrible Gentiles you could ever imagine. So the idea that the Pharisees would be judged by these people couldn't have been more repugnant. (laughs) And that's certainly extremely interesting, and I'll touch on it a little bit, but for whatever reason, these three conflicts became the main bulk of what I'm going to talk about. So 
Um, what's happening here is that first, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this field of grain on the Sabbath, and by now, Jesus's activities have excited the interest of the Pharisees. You don't want to excite the interest of the Pharisees, but nevertheless, he has. And so he has this little cloud of gnats who are always picking at everything he does and watching him very closely. So um, he and the disciples are walking through this field of grain, and they pick these fields of grain, or the grain heads and eat them. They're hungry. Simple act. And, uh, you know, this creates a moment for conflict because the Pharisees are saying, well, you're breaking the law of the Sabbath. Then we have the man with the withered hand, uh, the story of Jesus actually being in a synagogue right in the den of wolves. Not, they're not, we shouldn't demonize the Pharisees. I'm going to be careful not to do that, but he's certainly being watched closely. And he's baited, basically. Um, and this man with the withered hand, actually, Jesus says to him, stand up so everyone can see that you are deformed, basically, and I'm willing to publicly heal you despite the fact that I'm being watched and I will be accused for what I'm doing here. Because, again, I'm doing this on the Sabbath. And then um, we have this moment where there's a demon-possessed man um, that Jesus heals and heals dramatically. And then there's conflict about how Jesus accomplished that. The Pharisees saying, you did that by the power of the devil. Um, so the, the parties at work here are the Pharisees, onlookers. There's always a crowd of onlookers. And then there's the Jesus himself, right? So the Pharisees are very concerned for orthodoxy. They want to make sure that Israel, as a nation, follows the straight and the narrow, um, and that's kind of their role historically. And so they're not necessarily, I mean, I mean, this isn't a terrible thing necessarily that they're doing. They're, they're trying to make sure that everything's in line. And there certainly have been heretics before. Um, but Jesus is doing some pretty extraordinary things. By now he's raised someone from the dead as well. So this is not your normal incident of some irascible troublemaker who's theologically a little bit off. This man is unusual. Um, and then we have these onlookers, and you know, this is kind of a lot of different kinds of groups of people. When you're in the synagogue, there's all the way from the rulers to the least to the least. Um, in those contexts, men. Um, but then out in the public, uh, a lot of times Jesus tended to attract the the bedraggled. I mean, that was his magnetism. He would pull in the people who were overlooked and invisible. Um, but then Jesus himself, being this person who's... People are learning who he is. There's this learning curve to the people that are attracted to him. And the Pharisees themselves learning exactly how dangerous he is to their little empire of power and conceit in a lot of cases. So, um, I'm going to, let's see, I think something that's really important to notice about Jesus in these various conflicts is that um, these, are, these are emotionally charged moments, and um, 
he is able to test what's motivating the Pharisees by the way that they respond to him, um, even emotionally, right? So um, he noticed that they, they become very argumentative, etc. And instead of humbly being in agreement with reality and recognizing that it is a good thing when the, when the poor are lifted up, it is a good thing when someone who has a withered hand is healed. Um, all of these are positive things, and whether they break a particular law or not shouldn't actually matter. So something else is at issue. And what's at issue is their own sense of power and entitlement, and Jesus is gaining in popularity. People are responding to him. They're feeling loved by him. They're, he is, his words are starting to actually change people's lives and become more powerful than the words of the Pharisees. So something else is going on because their reactions are all disproportionate to the instigation, right? The instigation is something good, apparently, and, and they're overreacting with negative responses. So um, what is the conflict? There are three distinct parts, right? So at issue in the beginning is the Sabbath, then the idea of, of healing itself, where that should come from, and then when it's appropriate, and then demon possession. So these are kind of three sectors of human life in some ways. So you have this idea of sustenance, like Sabbath, like should you feed yourself on the Sabbath? That's an issue of culture, like what we do in our daily lives, and how that's ordered by God, and the kingdom of God, and the rules of God. And then healing, that has to do with our body, right? Our walking around, our physicality, etc. And then demon possession, that has to do with the spiritual realm, right? So in some ways, these three are, um, issues of argumentation are covering a lot of the essentials of what it means to be human, right? So that's just an interesting thing that I noticed pattern at work here. Um, and it shows, to, it shows us that, that Jesus has care for these, all of these aspects of human life. So um, I don't think I have time. I asked people to read particular sections, but I'm just going to have to gloss through. So um, let's look at the first one, the issue of the Sabbath and the grain. And I'm going to read to you the responses that Jesus has in particular and highlight some things. So this is Jesus's response when he's accused. He says to the Pharisees, have you not read that David what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guileless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is, is here. And if you... Excuse me. And if you had known that this, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what Jesus does is he points the conversation back to what is the, the heart of the law. Always he does that. But then I want to highlight as well that Jesus says, or have you, have, ne have you not read the law? Have you not read this story? Like twice he says that. Now please understand, these are the Pharisees. This, their sense of identity is entirely wrapped around the law. Of course they've read that in the law. So he's more or less like just kind of irritating them. He's just like taking a swipe at them. And a couple times, and you can see it 
multiple moments in his responses to things. And the next one with the healing, his response, what I, just setting up the situation a little bit. So he went on from there and entered into the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, he's pointing back to the reason for the law. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was healthy, just like the other. So Jesus, instead of doing this slyly, says, all right, we're going to make a moment right here. Let's do it. And it's in the synagogue. And then we have the demon possession issue, which I'm not going to go into the unforgivable sin. I'm just going to point out a few things. In this situation, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, and the highly irritated Pharisees say, well, the only possible way that you can do that is that you're in league with the devil. And part of what really irritates Jesus about this is that this is clearly the action of the Holy Spirit. And what's happening is the Holy Spirit is being accused of, like the work of the Holy Spirit is being called the works of the devil. That is like, and what's interesting is perhaps a a not theologically correct uh, image for something like this, but something that maybe gets at the heart of it is think of a brother um, stepping in and defending accusation of like the good works of a sister or something like that. Like someone does something out of the generosity of their heart and all of a sudden they're accused of like having evil motives and being evil. And the Holy Spirit is not evil. And so Jesus kind of gets his ire up and he's like, that is simply not, you do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You cannot do that. And the funny thing is like theologically he's defending himself, but he's also defending a part of the Trinity. <laughs> So there's a lot of that weirdness, you know, in there. But the whole, the Trinity's weird, you know. I'm going to acknowledge that one. Um, so, but that's a really emotionally charged moment. I mean, you know, it's not just that Jesus is being accused of being in league with the enemy. It's that a part of the Trinity is being called evil. And God's like, uh-uh, no, Jesus is not allowed. Okay, another thing to notice is in these cases... Suffering is the bait that the Pharisees use over and over again. And guess what? God can't resist it. He can't. He won't. Even if people are watching and he knows he's going to get ultimately crucified for it, he can't resist. And that's something incredible about God. And you wreck, like, in the moment that there's compassion, sometimes with God there can be anger immediately in the aftermath. So we follow an emotional God smart, gets himself out of a lot of situations and turns situations on a dime, but it's all charged and motivated by emotion. And I think that that's certainly something to notice, but then to learn from. So, what am I saying here? So the Pharisees 
see this wild holy man that's becoming very popular and he's not conforming to their rules and he's not even acknowledging their authority necessarily. So what they do is they try and appeal to the authority of the law itself and say things, well, like on the Sabbath, you can't do that. And so they're thinking that only the laws of God are capable of holding back this man that seems to be claiming to be God. And what's crazy is eventually they realize, well, if this man is actually God, then his own rules can't hold him back. Um, Jesus is more free than his own laws, which sounds a little bit weird, but we have to remember that the laws, especially the Ten Commandments, were made for man and not for God. So if you read the Ten Commandments and you try and apply them to God, honor your father and mother, you're like, well, well who's God's father and mother? <laughs> you know, honor the Sabbath, honor, honor all this. All this stuff is for us. Um, but the trouble is that that can be a little bit disturbing, right? Because we, we need a God who's not arbitrary, and so Jesus in this moment is saying, I'm more free than all these rules about the Sabbath because I understand the heart of what the Sabbath is for. I made it. And the thing is that what Jesus is doing here is actually really quite unsettling because he's saying, you know, God, from our perspective, I understand that not everyone that he was speaking to at the time understood that he was God. But from ours, we do. And so... He's basically saying, I'm more free than all that. And that can be nerve-wracking because not only is he saying, I don't follow those same rules, but he's also saying, I'm emotional. <laughs> he's demonstrating that he's emotional. So um, what are the implications of this? There are unnerving questions that are wrapped up in this. Is God arbitrary? Um, he's clearly emotional. Um, how are we to trust his emotions and actions if our rules don't necessarily apply to him? Um, and what guidelines are his guidelines? And does his submission to them diminish his power? That's another thing, too. So let's meet these questions in the context of the overall other things we know about God. So cons some considerations about God's emotions. Uh, the idea that a perfect God cannot have strong emotion is Greek and not Hebrew. That's the first thing. Um, in Greek Western thinking, we have this idea of this like, perfect, unmovable um, set of platitudes, essentially, that are not emotional, that are logical. That logic is the only stable truth, essentially. And that's not necessarily the way that Hebrews have understood truth to function, and that's a much more detailed and long-term conversation to have, but I mean, you can trust me on that. I'm pretty sure we can t talk about it later if you want to. Okay, and then we have, in, in our Western context, a lot of unexamined suspicions about emotion, right? So um, we think, well, emotions are often not true. Well, here's something I would push back with this a little bit and say, emotions are always reporting in a true way about what we believe. Now, whether what we believe or not is true is another question. Um, there's another uh, sort of implication or, or assumption we have about emotions, which is that uh, we have no will over them. They just seize us, and we have no way to push back. They're just, they, they just are, 
these wild beasts that can mess up your life. Um, but Jesus demonstrates that emotion can be firmly attached to right belief. And it can conform to what we know to be true and what is tested in and absolutely affirmed as fundamental reality. So emotion can be trained, essentially, for, from our perspective. Now, Jesus being fully God, fully man, no training necessary. Um, and another assumption we have uh, for people that think about sociologically, like the ideas of God, is that we've anthropomorphized God with our emotions. So we've, we've pushed on God so that we can understand him. Oh, he's sad now. Oh, he's a he. Oh, he's, you know, like all these kinds of, he's happy or, you know, these kinds of things. But maybe it's more true to say that perhaps emotions are more better or are better valued and understood as theomorphism. So in other words, we get our emotional life from God. And maybe along the way it's become desperately sick or misguided, but it's from God. Um, how's my time? Bad? Oh, good. All right. Some certainties based on God's promise and self-description, okay? So this, going back to this question of, so is God arbitrary? Well, if emotions can be attached to what is true belief, maybe not. Um, so, but God says there are certain things that are true of himself. And so his emotional life is not to be feared. God alone, first of all, is qualified to describe himself. <sighs> alone, God alone. And we see throughout the length and the breadth of the Bible, even through some very troubling episodes in the Bible that make us question a lot, the preponderance of evidence is that he uses a list of attributes to describe himself. And what's found in this list of attributes? I am just, I am truthful, I am light, and moreover, I am love. Like the culmination of an enormous list, a laundry list that you could... It's a wonderful exercise to actually go through and like write out for yourself how God describes himself. But it always ends in love. And a loving God is allowed a full range of emotions, including anger. Um, but not only that, God also has a list of promises or some key events in his story with humanity that are deep and abiding promises about how he will behave towards us. So remember, a while ago I talked about covenant, right? Um, Abram, he, God is introducing him to humanity for the first time, himself to humanity for the first time with Abram. And he does this weird thing called the covenant, which to our Western contemporary mindset is just bizarre, oh, but really weird. But, you know, animals are cut in half. There's three days of waiting. There's this moment when God himself in the form of a fiery furnace, we can ask about that later, steps through these parts of animal. And this was a known way of pledging yourself, pledging two parties through blood to a covenantal respons responsibility to one another. Normally the party that was more powerful doesn't walk through the blood. 
it's the, power, the party that's less powerful. But in this case, God alone run, walks through a trench of blood and mud and says essentially, if I do not do as I have promised to you, let be done to me what has been done to these animals. Let me be torn in half. Now that's intensely powerful because he was on the cross. And so Jesus was the seal on that promise of God saying, I will always be true to my word to you and I will flourish you and I myself will bring about your salvation. I will be faithful when you are not because I carry this covenant. And so in moments like this when we see Jesus in light of these enormous sweeping promises to humanity, this particular moment when these Pharisees are baiting and entrapping Jesus, he recognizes that it's petty and small, small-minded. So even though on technical terms, the Pharisees do win and they slay Jesus, and his incendiary remarks only stir up their murderous fury. None of us can deny that Jesus holds the high moral ground. So much so that Jesus says at the end of these three particular moments, I don't even need to judge you. Your own words will judge you. I don't even need to judge you because the people who are the Gentiles that supposedly are outside of my circle of love and care will rise up and judge you. So the Ninevites, right? And there's a whole beautiful story to this. Like Jonah is a type of Christ. He's in the belly of the whale for three days. He's ends up at Nineveh where he was supposed to be the whole time and he tried running away. And part of the reason that he kept running away and got really angry is because he knew that God was compassionate. And he says, oh, there's my timer going off. And he says, basically he gets really mad because the Assyrians and the Ninevites were pretty terrible people. I mean, atrocious. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were going to be merciful. I knew you were going to be kind to them. I didn't want that. And he had such hardness in his heart, right? Um, and so there's this wonderful story about God being, like, using an unwilling servant. But Jesus was willing. And for Jesus to say to these Pharisees in this particular incident that the Ninevites themselves would judge them like I said, was highly insulting. But Jesus himself says, I don't need to judge you because this is a situation where it's really clear. Anyway, a few more things. What do these conflicts say about God? Um, that his emotional life is firmly and justly attached to right beliefs. In other words, he's capable of what seems a contradiction. So he can have good rage. He can have righteous anger. Um, 
and there's an important thing to bear in mind as well, that his anger is actually essential. Because if God really loves justice, then the way for him to be true implies that he's angry at, the, at situations that are unjust. Otherwise, we have a God that's very, very sentimental. It's basically like a cotton candy God. A God who only like can have weak responses to... <laughs> and who always condones whatever we want at any time. And that's, a really, that's probably a more dangerous God than a God who has a temper. So I'm going to just, a few quotes from um, this wonderful book I'm reading right now by Abram Heschel. Um, so just bear with me. <laughs> Still got the thumbs up? Still smiling in the back there? Okay. Um, far from being a expression of petulant vindictiveness, the message of anger includes a call to return and be saved. The call of anger is a call to cancel anger. It's not an expression of irrational, sullen, and instinctive excitement, but a free and deliberate reaction of God's justice to what is wrong and evil. For all its intensity, it may be averted by prayer, and there is no divine anger for anger's sake. Its meaning is, as already said, instrumental to bring about repentance its purpose and consummation is its own disappearance. And then one last quote. The situation of little children in relation to their parents may be described as one of complete dependence. Children are miserable when deprived of the experience of being loved. Similarly, the situation of parents in relation to their children may be described as one of spiritual dependence. Parents are in misery when unable to love. As a rule, the parent is more fully conscious of the meaning of this dependence than the child is, and the parent's pain in hurting is deeper than the child's pain in being hurt. The anger of the Lord is a tragic necessity, a calamity for man and a grief for God. It is not an emotion that he delights in, but an emotion that he deplores. For he does not willingly affect or grieve the sons of men, says Lamentations 3.33. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves? Why do you provoke me to anger? Jeremiah 44.7-8. And so, I want us to recognize that even in moments where we see Jesus physically start smashing things in the temple, that it's all of the same cloth. The compassion that moved him to touch the woman that was unclean and to dignify her and heal her body, that same emotional continuum has him answering the Pharisees in such a way that he's deeply insulting to them and also has him smashing the tables in the temple of people who are misusing worship, all the way to moments when he's letting John rest his head on his, his chest 
the last night that he was alive. So the long and the short of it is that God's emotions are trustworthy, even though ours may not be all the time. We can also learn from God and help him to teach us how to have a better emotional life. (laughs) And so I want to take in a moment um, some time to pray and maybe let ourselves think about our own emotions a little bit differently and let the Holy Spirit say, perhaps in places where we haven't allowed it to, the Holy Spirit to hover over us and say that it's good where maybe we've condemned ourselves and ask him to attach our emotions to right beliefs. Um, So let's pray for a minute here. Lord God, we thank you that you made us in your image. And we thank you that you're in the business of sanctifying us and forming us and shaping us into the image of your son. And God, we acknowledge that at different times in history, we've been better at shaping different parts of us in your image than others. And we acknowledge that right now in this generation, we live in a really emotionally hedonistic moment. And we haven't trained our emotions to attach to you and attach to right belief. And we invite you to renew our minds and to renew our emotions. We give our whole self up to you. And that includes all the parts, the the culture, the body we occupy, the emotions we experience, the spirit that animates us. And Father, we see in these incidents with Jesus and the Pharisees that you have anger towards pride And you have right responses when justice is turned aside and when love is not allowed to prevail. And so, God, we ask that we would start to experience emotions that are in line with yours. That in this world where things are awry, we would start to be animated, motivated, emotionally, by what's true and right.
And Father, we, we say as well that um, we repent if we have fashioned you in such a way that you always say yes to us. <laughs> because a loving father opposes his own children many times. And so we submit to your correction. And we do so believing that at the heart and at the bottom of it all is love. And Father, these rules, these Ten Commandments, these Sabbath rules, these rules of righteousness and of justice and of a right path in this life, we submit to them, but we recognize that, again, at heart, at the very bottom, is love. And we pray that we would never manipulate these rules or these tools in such a way to just get our way or to inflict hurt on other people or to obstruct justice, to get our own way. So thank you, Jesus, for always simplifying these situations and looking at motives. and clarifying our own confusion by bringing it back to love. Thank you, God.